Hey guys, welcome to the Found It podcast. I'm your host, Rob. And today, me and Martin are talking to Will Mellers-Blair. He's the founder and CEO of Fitpack. And we talked to him about raising investment, what he's doing with Fitpack to try and get the world to be healthier, and also about going vegan. So yeah, this is a great one, full of great advice. So bring your notebook and jot down what you're saying. All right, enjoy. Is it recording? Yeah, it's recording right. now anyway. So first off, hello, Will. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure. Do you want to introduce yourself for everyone listening? Absolutely. So my name is Will Mellis Blair and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Fitpack, the employee health system. Cool. Um, and the first question we kind of um, ask everyone when they come on the podcast is what made you want to be an entrepreneur? It's a good question. And my background's in professional football before uh, academics. So I played for Manchester United uh, from the age of nine. So I guess I've always been around a high pressurized um, situations where you have to perform at your best. Um, so I guess I gained, you know, leadership skills from a very young age. I was always the captains of my teams. Um, and when I went to university, I went to um, the University of Michigan on a full academic scholarship. And once I graduated, I had no desire whatsoever to work for any corporation. Um, and I wanted to just address the ideas and the notions that I had in my head. Um, I initially got headhunted by the governments to work in health and well-being, and after a short tenure there of only um, a year and a half, I had this passionate idea of Fitpack, which it is today. Um, so I just thought, you know what, I've got to do this thing by myself and surround myself with the right people uh, to get the job done. So that's that's kind of my journey. Oh, so where do you think that comes from? Like not wanting to kind of work at you know do like the kind of normal thing like yeah, nine to five and kind of thing. I think it's the way my brain works, um, it, it doesn't allow for restriction and any time of the day, um, if my brain wants to be creative and, um, you know, off, off the hook, so to speak, and off the, off the curve, I need that space and that uh, capacity to allow my brain to do its thing, whether that's, you know, drawing on whiteboards, building models, um, I need to have that creativity and I felt that if I was surrounded by a corporate entity with a bureaucracy, then my ideas, my views um, would not be addressed and would not be valued as much as if I was to do my own thing. So that's kind of um, the reason why I steered away from the whole corporate background. Um, so is anyone in your family an entrepreneur or anything like that? Are you kind of the first, one of the first? Um, well, know? my mum, when she was younger, was an entrepreneur herself. She had three companies, oh, wow. um, all in hospitality. Um, so I've kind of grown up seeing her run from place to place, you know, being a social animal as she is um, and just really, <laughs> just really, you know, putting herself out there and making it happen. So I guess I've, um, I've just watched her, you know, do her thing like that. So it's definitely had an effect on me in my early years for sure. It's a big influence there. Was there anyone else? Obviously you're talking about you being the captain of the football teams throughout. I mean, was there anyone else during that, those periods of time that influenced you as well? I'd say a lot of my managers, you know, they saw that I just didn't want to play football. It was more than that for me. It was understanding strate uh, strategy, understanding tactics, understanding opponents' weaknesses. But not only that, they saw my tenacity to be the best version of myself on and off the pitch. So I think a lot of my coaches saw that from an early age and wanted to really nurture that. And I think that's why I got put in such uh, leadership roles of such a young age. I think that's fascinating, that coach-player relationship throughout sports, you know, any sports in terms of sort of mentoring, I guess, in terms of, you know, sort of being an influence. 
Um, how do you, you know, at the moment you're going through, um, obviously, an investment stage at the moment. How do you go around finding mentors? Have you got mentors? You know, how does that work? Absolutely. So I pride myself on my networking abilities and being able to sell a vision, so to speak. So whenever I uh, bump into any peculiar characters that I believe are of interest uh, to add to my network, I just go and make friends, you know, whether it's in a coffee shop, whether it's walking down the road, on the bus, on the train. On a podcast. On a podcast. <laughs> if, if I deem it to be um, worthy of uh, attention or if I think that the person that I'm speaking to could be um, of benefit for myself, but also if the opportunity interests them, I just like to put myself out there and see what happens. I mean, a lot of my network, um, I've, I've developed a very strong network in the UK of investors and venture capitalists and institutions. But actually what I'm very excited about is the network that I've built in the States. Obviously I was at university there for, uh, for four years. So I've kind of built a very strong uh, investor network when it comes to the later stages of investment. Cool. So what do you think is kind of like one thing that, um, cause a lot of people who listen to this podcast and one thing that we, the thing about setting it up is to try and tell like a founder story that is with people who are going through it right now. Like there's a lot of podcasts that talk to like, you know, your types of like Elon Musk and people like that and Zuckerberg where, where we're interested in people who are actually li living it right now. So what do you think is the one thing that is really important advice that you, maybe you wish you had when you first started? Um, I think the, the biggest piece of advice I can give to any first time founders and entrepreneurs is just believe in yourself and believe in the solution that you are advocating for. The one thing that I, um, I pride myself on as well is being risk adverse and being open to taking more risks uh, versus being cautious. And I remember when I first told a lot of my friends and family about wanting to leave the government job, you know, I had a, I had a very good salary for my age. You know, I just bought a brand new BMW M Sport. I had pretty much everything a 23 year old uh, young man wanted at that point. And when I kind of decided to let it all go for this, you know, this vision in my head, a lot of my friends and family thought I was nuts and thought I was crazy, but I was just inherently driven by what I perceived uh, to be true in the future. And I just really believed in that. And now when I talk to those friends and family members and also associates about the journey that I've been on and the tenacity that I've shown to get to this place, now I don't get questioned once. All, it, all I get now is belief in me. So I'd say the biggest piece of advice for first time founders is believe in yourself and believe in the vision that you're advocating for. Do you think on that kind of touching on that subject, do you think that founders are kind of made or is it something you can learn to do as a person? Because it sounds like something that you was just inherent to you, like obviously with the football and everything, like to kind of be this very visionary person who once they've made up their mind about something, that's what they're going to do. Do you think that's something that people can learn how to do or is it just you either born with it or you're not? It's a very good question. And I think it's part nature, part nurture. But I'd, honestly, I'd, I'd say it's, it's more nature. I think it's more in your DNA. Um, because the reason I say that is as human beings in this Western society, we're somewhat institutionalized to believe that you have to do things a certain way. You know, go to, go to school, get a job, you know, go to college, get a girlfriend, get married, have a kid, be secure. You know, we're kind of told this societal structure from really early. So when it comes to an idea of potentially going self-employed and potentially you know, taking all these risks, I'd say 9.9 .9 out of 10 people would not take those risks and would prefer to be secure and stable with a nine to five paying job. And I'd say that for most people, and that's completely fine. Um, but I do believe a lot of it is within your DNA. And if you just have that about your personality, I mean, there's 
loads of models and archetypes we can draw from here when talking about personality types. But on the flip side, yes, I do think it's mainly uh, and predominantly nature, but I do believe it's something that you can learn. You know, I've never been a CEO before in my life. Yes, I've been a leader. Yes, I've kind of uh, executed strategy and vision, but I've never been a, a CEO like I am now. You know, I've had to learn a lot. I've had to ask the right questions, surround myself with the right people. You know, if I go into Waterstones now, I know all of the staff because I've just lived in there for the past three to four years you know, and the top floor of the business section, reading all the books to understand business models, to understand strategy, to understand forecasting and finance, you know? So I think it, a lot of it is nature, but also um, a big sizable portion of that is also the nurture and also putting in the work, putting in the hours uh, and really learning what it takes to, to get it done. Talk to me about a story about, obviously on your journey at the moment of I don't know, failure, because I think that's, you know, or some learnings, should I say, I guess, learnings, because I think that's always good to hear from a founder and uh, an entrepreneur. I totally agree. And the one thing that I knew from the very get go when I founded the company was there will be ebbs and there will be flows. And it's important to maintain a level of equilibrium when you go through both. You know, I've had great highs and I've had some lows during this time uh, on this journey, but I haven't attached to either of them because I know that they're transient and temporary. And I am very confident that success is the ultimate goal and the ultimate inevitability, so to speak. So I guess the biggest learning so far that I've had is don't take anything for granted and actually don't think anything is concretized because things can change in an instant. Let me give you a, an example. So we launched the applications on the App Store and Google Play on January 1st in conjunction with New Year's resolutions. And we, you know, had a great launch. You know, we were approached by National Geographic. We were approached by uh, EasyJet and British Airways about being featured in their publications. Because again, plant-based has caught a lot of media attention. And we were the only, you know, startup, tech startup in the world positioned as a solely plant-based solution. So we got a lot of traction. And as a result of this traction, my lead investor, as it, as it stands right now, was interested in expanding uh, the proposition to businesses. And actually, we had a good, good uh, level of interest about doing this. So we started up a new company, uh, Fitpack Corporates. And the goal was, um, at that time, was to work with organizations um, and to prove that we can help, you know, increase uh, health and well-being of, of employee pools. Now, Peter was going to invest a further, Peter, Peter Wakefield's my uh, investor, by the way, uh, Angel Round. Um, <laughs> hi, Peter, if you're listening. Um, so Peter wants to put some more capital into the company to scale the business solution. And I got a very renowned, uh, highly renowned um, business strategist and corporate strategist to lead the vision. I also got a sales development guy in London as well with a great contact list. Got them on board, got them ready. Uh, share structuring was all organized. Uh, shareholders agreements were signed, et cetera, ready to go. And then COVID hit. So all of a sudden, the strategy that was supposed to work and I adamantly wanted to work, all of a sudden was never an opportunity. So I had to you know, take a step down off this pedestal that I was on at that time and really reevaluate where we're at now in conjunction to ultimately the longer term goals and Unfortunately, I had to let everyone go that was involved with Fitpack Corporate and the business solution at that time because the opportunity simply wasn't there because companies were mitigating costs and not increasing them. So that's kind of my biggest um, takeaway thus far is to do not get too attached to the successes or the failures, but continue on the journey and just believe ultimately in the solution. 
I've found that talking to some businesses that it's been a good a reset time to reflect on what you have and what you're, where you're going, I guess, in terms of your journey. I think it's fair to say you've had that same time to reflect. As yeah, well. absolutely. And for me personally, it was about, okay, if we're going to be locked down for at least 12 weeks, let's make sure I use this time productively personally before, before Fitpack. So what I did personally was take a step back and really get back to simplicity, getting enough sleep, eating very well, training well, making sure that I'm meditating and making my, make sure my mind and my body are at a place of harmony before, you know, the vocational and the professional world kind of starts again. So I took kind of 12 weeks, I wouldn't say off because I'm never really off. My brain won't allow for it, honestly. <laughs> Literally, uh, not even a few minutes, but um, I used the time uh, constructively to make sure that my mind and my body were reset and ready to go again. So yeah, COVID has been obviously disastrous for a lot of people and a lot of companies worldwide, but I think on an individual personal level, we've all had a lot of time to reevaluate. So just tell me, and that's a really interesting point that you've put there about having that personal time. So I think there's an element of like when people think of founders or starting a company, they think fully on working the 80, 100 hour week type things. And I'm, you know, I'm sure parts of those are, you know, part of it. But how important to you is it like having that kind of not time off, like you said, but just looking after you and your health and both mental and physical? It, how important is that to keeping the progress and keeping the kind of momentum going when you're working on such a big task as like to have found in a company? It's a good question. And for me personally, my fascination and my engagement really is in the science and understanding the human body at a cellular level. So if you deconstruct the human body to its parts, um, we have obviously our brain and we have our body, which is connected via the vagus nerve. And ultimately, if we're not taking care of our immune system, if we're not taking care of our neural networks, which is inside of our brains, by eating more fruits and vegetables, by meditating, by moving the body, then as a human functioning mechanism, which is our human bodies, we cannot work well. We cannot produce, we cannot deliver on a day-to-day -day life level, no mind professional. So one of Fitpack's main you know, goals and missions is to educate people um, how to lead uh, and live a healthy and happy lifestyle in mind and in body. Because if we can, on an individual level, get to a place of harmony and work with the human body instead of against it, then we can then go on to be productive, go on to succeed, etc. So it's very important that we take care of mind and body first inside so that on the outside we can take care of business. So this leads me on to my next bit, which I've wanted to talk about because it's something that me and you have in common. You're a vegan, right? So when, first question is, when did you first become vegan and why? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I've been now vegan, plant-based, whatever you want to call it, plant-based vegan for almost four years, actually. November of 2016 was when I first shifted. And it, it was as a result of a friend of mine uh, mentioning how it had helped her increase her energy levels, um, decrease stress, um, you know, increase vitality. For someone that cares so deeply about human optimization like I do, I initially thought, no way. You haven't cut out all meat and you're not experiencing all this goodness. No way. Where are you going to get your protein? Exactly. All these myth-busting questions. So uh, someone like myself, I need to see the science. So I went really deep into the research aspects of it. I did my due diligence. I did a lot of scientific study analysis. 
And I thought, you know what? I'm going to do a 30-day trial on my own body, my own mind, to really put this to the test. So after the 30 days, I was astounded by how much energy I had, how I was recovering from my training sessions, how well I was sleeping, how my mood just felt a lot better and how I felt better in myself. So I thought, let's give this a go. It was very tough, I won't lie. Um, during the uh, tenure from 2016 till now, it's got easier over time, but I'd say the first six months initially was very difficult simply because of how my, uh, my physiological body had been metabolizing, obviously, animal products before that. So it was a, a gradual trajectory to get to this place, but I'd say uh, over time it becomes a lot easier. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's, um, it's one of those things that people feel like it's an impossible thing to do and it is difficult, um, but once you're kind of over that hump, it's kind of like you. You just think, well, what? What was the big? What was the big deal? <laughs> I agree. So, Rob, you. How long have you been vegan? I've been vegan probably about the same time as well, about four years. But before that, I was vegetarian for since I was about seventeen. Mm. Or so, um, I guess you're talking about it is hard because I've I've actually tried doing it. You know, yeah. and um, for me, it's hard because in the environment, I guess. Mm. You know, if, if you're doing it, you, it's, it's good for your partner, I guess, and the rest of your your household to do it. Yeah, it was really. It, it was easier for me to go vegan because I was vegetarian for a long time. And then my girlfriend, when we moved in together, we were, she was used to be vegetarian, then kind of slipped off. And then she said, when we move in together, we're going to go vegan. And then we did. So it's a lot easier having that kind of person there. Because if there's no meat or dairy in the house, it's like, it's a lot easier as well. And you're not going, all right, you're going to places where they serve that kind of stuff, but you're both not having the same thing. So you're not tempted. Exactly. It's like, I always think it's like, if you're, two people and one of you is trying to give up smoking it's like living with another smoker yeah. and then expecting it to be really easy to like, <laughs> not have a cigarette or whatever when i first turned uh vegan in 2016 in comparison to now there were there were no vegan ranges every single supermarket now has a vegan range it was just linda mccartney sausages at that point so it literally was having to like learn a new language uh, you know, learning a new language at that point, it was like, okay, if I'm not going to get proteins from, you know, chicken or fish, where am I going to get my uh, proteins? Are they complex proteins? Are they complete proteins? Um, so a lot, a lot of this stuff, because obviously I've got a background in um, performance, I could really grasp the idea of how to complete my proteins. Um, but for a lot of people that are trying to turn vegan or go plant-based for the very first time, it is a very difficult task. And it's one that does take time and energy to, to execute. So... How long, like, obviously FitPack is, is going to be on that journey and it's, it's to educate people as well and, and improve their well-being through sort of vegan lifestyle. But how do you, how, in your mind, how long do you think that's going to take for the world to, I mean, the world is starting to click on now, right? It has been for a few years. Like, we're in, like, how, where do you see the world in 2030? Uh, it's interesting you say 2030 because actually there's a report come out as of a few days ago that um, society will be plant-based by 2032. Um, so here's kind of my projections based off um, actuality and a bit of em empirical data. So we're now in contact with Public Health England uh, in the climate and health department. So I've got a very good contact there, uh, Dr. Revati Palki, who I've known for quite some time. And they have been given a new five-year plan uh, with uh, a multiplicity of grant capital to focus on advocating for plant-based diets. So what I envision in the next five years is for the UK government to begin 
pushing plant-based eating and living at the moment as per covid um and as per the transfer of the disease the uk government are now saying we need to eat healthier and move our bodies well yeah this is quite vague and quite ambiguous at this point but i believe there's going to be a switch in the next few years maybe three to five years of okay the okay uk government uh, sorry okay uk population and other populations it's time to start eating more plant-based now because here's the science and here's what's going to happen so yeah that's my projections i think also it makes it better because of you know products like yours as well but also like we were saying earlier with the range it's like the big thing i've noticed over the last couple of years just the amount of other choice and stuff that you've got and like you know most of the time um you can go to a restaurant, <laughs> apart from the one we were talking about off air earlier don't mention them we don't want to get sued <laughs> no mention no names yeah no mention no so, names yeah so most of the time you can go and you can have something and you know even i know so many people who aren't like full being but they're definitely like they're more conscious about the you know their meat and dairy intake which is like a few years ago there just would have been like no you it would have been kind of laughable and even years before that like get it it was kind of just hippie-ish people who are vegan or whatever um so in terms of that like where do you see kind of the the future for fit pack like in that kind of you know the kind of the the trajectory of people changing that kind of being more accepting to plant-based either through you know it being more popular but also being a necessity um where do you still see fit pack kind of fitting in with that um i'll be very honest and quite frank at this point um simply because of the connections that we're now making I've just secured a clinical partnership with the CIC, um, otherwise known as the Care Innovation Corporation, which is led by Professor Michael Miller. And Michael sits on the World Health Organization board. So with the World Health Organization implications and the Public Health England contacts that I've got, and also I'm being introduced to the ex-CEO of the NHS, I truly believe that FitPAC will be the preferred, um, the preferred option for turning to a plant-based lifestyle and increasing well-being. That's my level of confidence at this point. So I think just to kind of take it back to like basic entrepreneurship for a second, like what do you think? Like, so obviously you've been on this journey, like we've discussed, like going from this kind of, you know, playing for United as a kid and then getting into like a kind of job and then realizing you've had this vision and then literally going hard at like educating yourself and pushing for that and to the point where you are now. But what do you think is kind of, the the biggest thing people get wrong because there's a lot of people who want i think to be a founder it's like one of those popular things like i think when they go into like schools or whatever behind being a celebrity or whatever most people yeah i want to i want to be like a, a big you know founder of a startup and all this kind of stuff what do you think is the thing that people get wrong about it what, what's the kind of a big myth about being a founder that people think happens but actually it's not like that I think the biggest thing i've got a lot of friends and associates that are founders entrepreneurs successful some failed I think the biggest thing that founders and entrepreneurs get wrong is thinking they're always right. Um, I think you have to have a level of vulnerability and a level of honest um, honesty as well in understanding that you are not always right. Yes, you might be smart, but you're not always right. Um, so I made sure to really cross-reference every single thing that I did before I did it because if I was ever scrutinized, I could rationalize in a, in a very pragmatic way. So I think that make, all founders should understand you are not always right. Yes, you've got a, prom a promising a, a proposition and it might work, but understand that you are not always going to be right and do have the um, capacity to seek counsel with things that you're not too sure about. And understanding that 
um, again, you're not always right and you're not always going to be in your zone of excellence or your zone of genius. I've read a book a few years back by an author named Gay Hendricks called The Big Leap. Um, and he talks about we operate in four different zones, the zone of incompetence, the zone of competence, the zone of excellence, and the zone of genius. He advocates that we should always be operating in our zone of genius because that's what we're good at. Now, if we're doing things, and as a CEO myself, there's things day to day, for instance, legal documentation, not my forte. So what's the point in me trying to go into detail of getting this job done instead of just go and get legal counsel? Because I want to continue to do what I'm really good at instead of what I'm not good at. So as, uh, again, just to reiterate, uh, have the capacity within your being that you are not always going to be right and that's okay. Cool. Um, so what's next on the agenda for Fitback? What's the next stuff that's coming up for you guys? For sure. So I guess there's kind of three big company updates uh, and I'll kind of touch upon those quickly. So the first one is I've just uh, recruited our Silicon Valley-based executive advisor who's soon to become our CFO. Um, and his name is Tanmay Carr. And Tanmay has helped raise over $500 million in investment capital from um, in health tech companies and SaaS companies uh, funded by, you know, Anderson Horowitz, one of the world's leading venture funds, you know, first round capital, Bain Capital, Norwest, all of the big Silicon Valley players he's raised from. And now he's sat on my management team. So that's the first, the first kind of key hire I've made. We've just repositioned the company as a B2B SaaS entity. So now we're going to be, uh, selling to companies and uh, HR decision makers and chief people officers to really work closely with HR departments to help mitigate costs when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to reducing sickness days, uh, absenteeism, and overall helping productivity and improving that Fitpack can increase ROI across the board. That's kind of the second uh, big company update. And the third one is, like I said, is the, is the clinical partnership with the CIC. So now what Fitpack's been um, headhunted to do is to be part of a global type two diabetes solution now, in October of this year, uh, we demonstrate this solution to the governments in Saudi Arabia, in China, and also Luxembourg. Uh, and with that said, after those demonstrations, it'll be rolled out to other um, global um, governmental health uh, institutions as well. So a lot's going on. Uh, as I speak, actually, uh, we're moving through the seed round of uh, investment capital. So we're raising uh, $2 million, which will help us uh, scale our corporate offering and also integrations with clinical institutions and also help us achieve a, a, a ARR run rate of 500k to 1 million. And then this time next year, Q3 or Q4 of 21, we'll be raising a series A round of 10 million uh, to scale predictably. So that's kind of the roadmap now is the next 12 months is raise 2 million within the next uh, few weeks, um, get everyone full-time, my management team, build and bolster the team with customer success with uh, developers and uh, development and engineering. We also need to go and recruit a really renowned AI ML specialist to help us build the models. Um, so a lot, a lot of work to do, but um, um, I'm making sure that the team's robust and ready to get the job done. You're not messing around. Absolutely not at this point. <laughs> Absolutely not. So obviously you've, you've raised money for, for the, the, the angel investment. 
talk about obviously I guess the differences or this next round of investment what are your what are your learnings been what you've noticed you know what what advice would you give to somebody because there'll be a lot of guys you've you've raised that uh, raised that initial investment and it's quite daunting I guess to go you know once you've you built an MVP and you've got, or you built a product and you want to get more investment it could be quite daunting so I guess if there's any tips or advice around that yeah I'd say obviously in the traditional kind of funding rounds it's always kind of the, the bootstrapping year, you know, we had a bootstrapping year in 2018 where we used our own cash uh, to get, you know, a proof of concept, so to speak. And we only spent a few thousand pounds across the year to get this done. So my first piece of advice is make sure you put your own cash in first just to get off the ground. Um, and then after that, you know, friends and family round or an angel round, so to speak. And we raised a hundred grand, which got us obviously the apps on the market and a few operations uh, here and there to get some early users and some, some data insights. But what I'd say is angel, the angel round is more, can you sell the vision? Because right now you haven't got anything. You might have a workable product and a prototype and you might have a few users, but can you prove viability of this? And that's kind of where you have to sell a vision. And that's what I managed to do with the angel round uh, last year, around this time, actually. Um, whereas going to intercede, you know, when you're raising in excess of one, $2 million, at this point, there can't be just vision. There has to be concrete plans and concrete models built around the vision to prove the business model, because that's ultimately what's going to be scrutinized the most is the commercialization model. How do we make money? Not just how do we make money? How do you make money for the next 10, 15 years? Um, so I've, I've experienced a level of sophistication and actually I've had to increase my skill set tenfold in 12, in this 12, in this last 12 months to get to this place. And the level of kind of granular questions that I get asked now from investors, I'm now ready for is because I put myself in a position to be surrounded by the right people who can give me the right knowledge about the intricacies of what it really takes to raise $2 million. So my first piece of advice is be very sure of the vision before you go and speak to any angel investors because they will shoot you down. And I did get shot down a lot and I did get told no. Um, and when you get told no, don't take no for the final answer. Explore the no more. Why no? Explore why. Was it your pitch? Was it your delivery? Was it your business plan? You know, what was it? Explore more because I know a lot of entrepreneurs, they get told no by an investor and then think, oh, you know, I failed. I can't do this. No, don't don't take no for the final answer. Explore why. Because no's, uh, the, the answer to the no will ultimately get you to a yes. And that's what I used. And then the second piece of information and advice that I've got after you've raised your angel round is surround yourself with the right people to get the components secure and robust before you go and raise, you know, significant amounts of capital. Yeah, I think I think we can leave it there, man. Been awesome having you on and as as usual, always nice to see you and yeah, some really, really great advice. Thank you. Just just remember to come back and see us when you're a unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, quote me. That's on tape now. That's on tape. <laughs> quote me. I'll be back. <laughs> All right. Cheers, man. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Cheers.